chapter 17 and Luke chapter 17. Let me pray for us and then we'll start reading. It's all right. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can open it up together, that we can sing praises to you, that we can open up your word, that you can teach us through that. And Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. Help us to understand what true faith is. Help us to understand what it means to follow you and to be your disciple. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Luke chapter 17, we're going to cover the whole chapter today. So starting at verse 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep would say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will, he not, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. We'll stop right there for now. So Jesus tells us that stumbling blocks will come. And what he means by stumbling blocks, it it means us being wronged by other people. And whether it could be intentional or just careless, these things can happen to us. And they're inevitable. It's just part of life that things are going to come up to trip us up. But how we respond to them is not inevitable. We have a choice in that. And he gives these instructions that we must rebuke and forgive. Both of those things are important. There has to be a balance to it. Because if we go too far, we, some of us may love to rebuke someone else, but really be slow to forgive them. And some of us may be really forgiving, but then never challenge a person when they do something wrong. So you have to have balance there. And especially when we're talking about a brother, a fellow believer in Christ. Because failure to do either one of these things, to either rebuke or forgive, can lead a person to f- further sin. If we never tell somebody what they're doing is wrong or that you've been wronged by them, they'll just keep on doing it. But at the same time, if we, anytime somebody does something wrong to us, we just say, all right, well, I forgive you and never challenge them on it. That can just means that they'll just keep on doing it. So we have to rebuke and forgive. And then he says how many times we should do it. He says seven times a day. And you may think, all right, so at the eighth time, I'm good. You know, I can just, I don't have to forgive them anymore. But no, in in terms of the Bible, seven is a number of completeness, of whole. As in we have seven days of the week. It's a number that's associated with being complete and full. And if there's any confusion, Jesus clears it up in Matthew 18 where he says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 
So if someone is hard enough for somebody to offend you seven times a day and to ask for repentance or to repent of that, but if they can do it 70 times seven, that, that's a pretty big number. In other words, we're to forgive as often as is necessary. There's no point to where we can say, all right, I don't have to forgive you anymore. And his disciples recognized that to forgive like that requires faith. So they asked Jesus to increase their faith. Now, they got something right here. What they got right is that Jesus is the source of our faith. Hebrews chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12, we read that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And in Romans 10, we read that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So that's where our faith comes from. That's, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. But they got a couple of things wrong here. They didn't really understand how faith works and how we increase our faith. And Jesus points this out. He says, it doesn't take a lot of faith as long as your faith is in the right person. And that's Jesus. He uses the illustration of a mustard seed. And a mustard seed was the smallest seed that was in use in this area at the time. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's tiny. I mean, you wouldn't even really notice it if you weren't looking for it. And so whenever people would want to say something is really small, they would say, it's as small as a mustard seed, such as my bank account is small as a mustard seed. You know, it was that type of thing to where they wanted to refer to something that was very small. But what Jesus tells them here is that the least amount of faith is more than sufficient for miracles to happen. The least amount of faith is more than sufficient. Even so, Jesus often rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. In Matthew chapter 6, and we we actually sang some paraphrases from Matthew chapter 6 in the song we just finished, He, he, he basically tells them that worrying is a lack of faith. He says, don't you see that God takes care of the plants and the animals? Don't you think he cares more about you? And then he ends that by saying, you of little faith. When we worry, it shows that we have a lack of faith. So he shows them it doesn't take a lot of faith. But he also pointed them to how you increase your faith. Because increasing faith comes through exercise and a right understanding of God. Now, what do I mean by that, by exercise? I don't mean going to the gym, um, but it's a similar idea. In Matthew chapter 14, we have this picture of Jesus' disciples were in a boat, and Jesus wasn't with them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts walking on the water to them on the boat. And they start freaking out, obviously, because you've never seen a person walk on water before. But when he says it's him, Peter says, Lord, if it's you... Tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. Now, people like to get on to Peter about what happened, but I will say that Peter was the only one who got out of the boat. Everybody else is still in the boat here. But Peter gets out, and he walks on the water to Jesus. But then he starts getting freaked out because he's walking on water. And he starts to sink, and Jesus reaches out and grabs him. And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the road to faith passes through obedience to the call of Jesus. Jesus called Peter to come out, and he was obedient to that. 
And that's how we increase our faith. It's through exercising our faith. But the second way we increase our faith is through having a right understanding. In Luke chapter 7, there was a centurion whose slave was sick, and he was seeking out Jesus so that Jesus might heal his slave. And Jesus says, all right, I'll come to your house. And the the centurion, who was a soldier, who was an officer, had had men under his charge, says, Lord, you can't come to my house, he says, because I'm, I'm a man under authority, and I have authority over other people. And when I tell the people under my authority to go do something, they do it. And what he was saying is that I know you, Jesus, have authority over this illness. And that all you have to do is say the word. And Jesus marveled at this. Because this man wasn't a Jew. He was one of the occupiers. And he says, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. This man understood the way faith works. He understood who Jesus was. We see knowledge and faith go together. If you were in house fellowship with us last week or this past week, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 1. And in that verse, one of the most memorable verses in there, it says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I know. He doesn't say, I, I kind of think, I have hope. He says, I know who I, who I have believed. That knowledge is important. See, faith is not like a savings account where each week you put a little bit back in there and then when something big comes up, you can take a withdrawal from it for a big purchase or for an emergency. And faith is not like a superpower that we possess, you know, that we use it however we choose. Faith is relying and having trust in God's power and things according to His will. See, it's... Faith is not self-confidence, which I think is the way that a lot of people use the word faith today. Say, I just have faith that's going to work out. Faith is not self-confidence. Faith is God-confidence. Again, going back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, I know whom I have believed. It's not what I have believed, or it's not I believe in myself. It says, I know whom I have believed. And that's Jesus. See, increasing faith is kind of like when we pray for patience. You ever pray for patience and then all these opportunities come up where you need patience? Because what we, what we want God to do is say, God, just make me a patient person. Just kind of like take my patience from like a five to an eight. That'd be great. But the way he works, he does it is he gives us those opportunities to push where it's required. And it's the same way with faith. He puts us in situations where our faith has to grow. See, there's no magic wand and there's no super pill. There's no shortcuts to increasing our faith. It comes from exercising our faith and having a right understanding. And starting in verse 7, he gives this illustration. He said, Jesus, and he points to the connection between faith and obedience. See, in American culture, uh, my, my friend Micah, who, who researches stuff in church, uh, church life, and he, he said at a conference that we went to a while back, he said that the American culture is built on the twin pillars of individualism and materialism. Individualism 
and materialism. And we talked a little bit about materialism last week at the end of the message. But when we look at individualism, he, my friend Micah explains it like this. He said when he goes to buy a pair of jeans, he wants the nicest looking jeans, he wants the most comfortable jeans, and he wants the lowest price. And that's how we are a lot of times with faith and church and with God. We want the nicest looking place. We want it to be the most comfortable. And we want the one that asks the least of us. See, things like obligation and duty fly in the face of individualism, which is why we often respond so negatively to them. But Jesus is saying here that we have certain duties as slaves to Christ. The Scripture tells us that we're to die to ourselves, that we're to deny ourselves and our own desires and our own feelings. And going back to what we're talking about here, forgiveness, we don't usually feel like forgiving people. Usually we want to hold on to that, said, uh, you know, just let it sit there. And anytime we have a chance to get even, you know, we look for it. So we can't go by our feelings when it comes to forgiveness. We have to be obedient in that. And, and it's so weird because some, some folks act like they're doing God a favor by serving Him. You know, and for, they say, well, I'm doing such a great thing for God by forgiving this person or by being obedient. But when we forgive, we are only doing what we are supposed to do. It's not some great act of charity or anything that's excellent. Because whatever we do in faith, it's not us doing it. God is actually doing the work. That's kind of the point of faith. It's not us doing the work. It's God who's actually doing the work. Because he, he talks about here in verses 7 through 10 about this slave. He said, you know, in verse 9, he says, He did not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. See, when we do the things that God has commanded us to do, we don't deserve a reward for that. There's no gold star for being obedient to God. Let me say that again or say it a little differently. We don't deserve a gold star for being obedient to God. But here's the thing is that He rewards us anyway. But any rewards we receive from God are given because of His grace, not because of debt. God doesn't owe us anything. That's what makes His grace and His gifts to us so extravagant. How could God possibly owe us anything? So bringing this back to faith, if you want to increase your faith, simply do what you already know from God's Word to be right. If you want to increase your faith, do what you already know to be right. In other words, it's obedience that increases our faith. Let's keep reading here, starting at verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. Ten, as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet 
giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. See, the law, particularly from like Leviticus 13, gave specific rules for people who had leprosy. And leprosy was kind of a, a broad term to talk about different conditions of the skin, rashes and things like that, as, as far as like full-blown leprosy. They had to live alone because they were considered unclean. They had to, usually they would live in communities of other lepers so that they, they could be unclean together and not infect other people. And these were outside of the regular communities. These were not a part of the normal routine of things. But when a person was healed or when they recovered from this illness, they had to go to the priest and the priest would inspect these different skin conditions and make sure that they were healed. And then the, uh, there was a certain uh, procedure that they would go to and then go through, and then they could return to normal life. And so that's why Jesus tells them to go to the priest, because that's what it would take according to the law for them to return to a normal life. But what's cool here is that Jesus did nothing outwardly spectacular. He said no special words. All he said was, go and show yourselves to the priest. Very simple. And these ten men were obedient to that. And maybe it was just that small amount of faith that when Jesus said it, I'm going to obey it and do what he says. So they turned around. There was a small amount of faith, but there were still some there. They obeyed in faith. Now for the Samaritan, there was physical healing. But then he comes back. And there was a spiritual healing. They're two separate things. See, sometimes it's the other way around. If you remember back in Luke chapter 5, the story of the paralyzed man whose friends lowered him down through the roof in the middle of this crowd where Jesus was. And everybody was like, you know, is Jesus going to heal this guy? Is Jesus going to heal this guy? The first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven, which was considered blasphemy because only God could forgive sins. And Jesus says, well, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this guy to get up and walk? But to show you who, that I am, who I say I am, then he told the man to get up and walk. So the spiritual healing and the physical healing are two separate things, and they don't always go together, and they're not always in the same order, which should warn us that just because somebody's life appears to be blessed, just because things seem to be going really well, you can't assume that God is blessing them or that they're a person who is a believer. Because the Scripture says He causes His rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. We can't judge by outwards appearance what God is doing in someone's life. But the other thing that we see in this story is that once again, it's a Samaritan who acts in the right way, which Jesus points out. See, the Samaritan-Jewish conflict was not just a a religious or a cultural disagreement. This was something that had gone on for hundreds of years. There had been hostility there around different things. The Jews very much looked down on the Samaritans. And so you have this Samaritan leper who basically is doubly unclean because one, he's a Samaritan, and two, he has leprosy. So he's got two strikes against him, which is more than enough. And Jesus, again, highlights the faith 
of this non-Jewish person, just as he did with the centurion and his slave that needed to be healed. And he refers to him as a foreigner. And, you know, if we call someone a foreigner, that has kind of a tinge of insult to it. But that's not what Jesus meant by this. He's rather pointing out his great faith and his right attitude as compared to that of the Jews. See, faith among the Jews was expected, but greatly lacking. Because God had had this special relationship with Israel. He had seen, they'd shown them miracle after miracle, had guided them for generation after generation. And so it should be expected that they would have faith when the Messiah showed up, but they didn't. But see, faith among the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, was unexpected. It's what made it so remarkable that this non-Jewish person would recognize who Jesus is and respond the right way. And even in this, we see Luke's focus on the universal outreach of the gospel. And as we look at, we have to remember that Luke was a companion of Paul through many of Paul's ministry, uh, much of Paul's ministry. And Paul had this, his primary ministry to were those who were not Jews, to the Gentiles. And so we see Luke, who's Paul's companion, drawing attention to these non-Jewish people who are responding to Jesus over and over again. And one last point through this section. Jesus accepted this man's thanks and worship in contrast to some of the others. And what I mean by that, there are those who will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And see, when Peter, in Acts 10, somebody came to Peter and bowed down and started worshiping, and he said, no, don't do that. I'm just a man like you. And in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas, they started, the people started referring to them as gods. And he said, they tore their clothes and said, no, that's not what's right. But Jesus, when someone bowed down and worshipped him, he didn't rebuke him. He accepted it because Jesus was God in the flesh and he deserved to be worshipped. Jesus wasn't just a good man or a prophet or a teacher or a good example. But Jesus was God himself and he knew that. So as we look at this Samaritan and his response to Jesus, we can see that it's thankfulness that focuses our faith. It's thankfulness. Let's continue on, starting in verse 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is. Or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he, and he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, 
The one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So Jesus uses two stories from the Old Testament to illustrate some things about his day, the day of the Lord, his, the day that he will return. He uses the story of Noah and the flood, which I think probably most of us are pretty familiar with, when God destroyed all life on earth except for Noah and his family and the animals that were there in the ark. He also uses the story of Lot and Sodom and how God's judgment rained down on Sodom and Lot and his family escaped, but Lot's wife looked back, longing to, you know, having some connection with that city, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. She died there. So he uses these to point out a few things about his coming, his second coming. So here's, here's a few things that we learn from this passage about the day of the Lord. First of all, the kingdom had already arrived, but not the way they expected. Jesus tells them, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst because he was there. And the kingdom of God had already started in, in a subversive way. It was not a political one that took over, kicked the Romans out, or anything like that. It was one that would be built within his people and in their hearts. He said that the Messiah, or as he refers to himself, the Son of Man, must first suffer which again was contradicting their expectations. They didn't understand the prophecies of Isaiah and others that said that the Messiah, the Savior, must suffer first. And he says that prior to the day of the Lord, hard times and persecution will make us long for Jesus' physical presence. He said that just like with Noah and Lot, life will continue normally until that day. And so we must balance being aware of the signs, being aware of what's going on, the times that we live in, without being completely preoccupied by it. We can't take the posture of, I'm going to sit up on the rooftop and wait till Jesus comes back and ignore the rest of our life. That's not what Jesus calls us to. But we are supposed to be aware that it could come at any time, any day. See, His return will not be hidden It will not be secret. It will be sudden and universally visible. So if somebody says, hey, I heard that Jesus came back over here. No, that's that's not what it's going to be like. It will be obvious. And and even kind of explains this a bit in verse 37 where, you know, other people would ask him when, and he didn't really answer that question the way they wanted. So they said, well, let's ask where. Maybe that's a better question. And Jesus gives this example, which for most of us maybe go like, what? Where he says, where the body is, also the vultures will be gathered. Now, I grew up in the country, and so I knew when I see vultures and buzzards circling around that something was dead. You know, it was obvious. And so what he's saying here is a proverbial statement that it's going to be easy to find. It will be obvious. And he gives this, what should shake us a bit in these last few verses here. 
where he says that some will be taken and some will be left behind. And I'm not talking about a bunch of books that you may have seen or movies or anything like that. That his point here is that our decision to accept or reject Jesus will be realized suddenly. It will be like that. To where whatever decision we've made will be will come to fruition at that one point. And after that point, there will be no more second chances. God is patient with us. God gives us opportunity after opportunity, but there are times when those opportunities will come to an end. So if you're a person who hasn't yet made that decision to follow Christ, know that the consequences of that decision can happen at any moment. You can't say, well, I'm going to wait till I'm older. I'm going to wait till I'm married. Wait till I've had my fun. You're not guaranteed that time. But for those of us who are believers, who have accepted Jesus, who are following Him as best we can, we must always be ready to give up our lives in both big and small ways. We're to have this absolute indifference to all worldly interest as the attitude of readiness for the Son of Man. In other words, in anticipation of that day, we must not be too attached to earthly possessions and comforts. Those things aren't wrong, but we have to hold them very loosely. You know, the, the most prevalent Christian radio around this area has this slogan, uh, safe for the whole family. I mean, you probably heard it probably a million times. If you listen for an hour, you probably hear that phrase like 20 times. And I get what they're saying. They're saying that you can let your kids listen to this and you won't hear all the vulgar things that you hear in a lot of other radio. And I get that. But following Jesus is not safe for the whole family. And I think we do people, and especially our kids, a disservice when we say Jesus is about safety. It's about being safe. You know, that if you want to be safe, you have your airbags and your seatbelt and you have Jesus. Um, That's not what following Jesus is about. Safety is not what following Jesus is about, at least not in the way that we think of safety. One writer I read said this. He said, Jesus never called us to be safe. He called us to be faithful. And through these hard times, through facing those things that are inherently not safe, it's our, endur- it's our endurance that will reveal our faith. We see that throughout Scripture. It's our endurance that will reveal our faith. A little bit earlier, I quoted a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran minister in Germany during the rise of Hitler and the Nazis um, up through World War II. He actively worked to help rescue Jews from the Nazis, and he publicly spoke out against this political system that was turning the Fuhrer, Hitler, into an idol or a god. He was in America, and all of his friends were like, if you go back to Germany, they're going to get you. And he says, I I can't stay here in safety and make these proclamations. I've got to be with my people in Germany. So he goes back to Germany during the lead-up to and during World War II. And because of his work, he was jailed. He eventually was put in a concentration camp and executed just months before 
the Allied forces came in and liberated that camp. But in those last weeks and months, he wrote this to one of his friends. He says, I am sure of God's guidance. You must never doubt that I am thankful and glad to go the way which I am being led. My past life is abundantly full of God's mercy, and above all sin stands the forgiving love of the crucified. Even when he was facing death, he says, I am thankful for the way that I'm being led. And that should be challenging to us, that when we hit those hard times, that we are to be thankful. If we're being faithful to God and following the direction that he has given us, we should be thankful even when we face those things. Because it's obedience that increases our faith. It's thankfulness that focuses our faith. And it's endurance that reveals our faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that coming to you, following you, is an act of faith. There's evidence that points to you, but there's nothing that proves without a doubt the things that you taught us, that we have to respond in faith. But you don't leave us out here just to try to figure it out on our own. You, You guide us and you lead us. You call us. Lord, I pray that in obedience we would respond to that call in faith. Whatever that would be for us. Because Lord, we know that it takes faith to please you. It doesn't matter how many big things we think we're doing for you. If we're not being faithful, if we're not being obedient to what you have called us to do, it's just noise. So, Lord, as, as your apostles said, asked, you know, that you would increase their faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us the opportunity for our faith to grow, for us to exercise our faith. Give us a better knowledge of who you are, the one that we put our faith in. We thank you for your word. We thank you that these words that you taught your disciples have been recorded here for us all these years later to, to learn from again and again. And as we go into this time where we remember the sacrifice of your son, how he gave his body for us, as we remember his body through the bread and his blood that was spilled through the the cup, Lord, may we be thankful for that. May we not take it for granted. May we rejoice in the resurrection that we remember every Sunday as we come together. We give this time to you. We give our lives to you. We pray these things in the name.